The International Space Station is the last space station the government will own and operate, which means what comes next is commercial. Welcome to the Space Angels podcast, episode number two, Reimagining Space Stations. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, CEO of Space Angels, the world's leading source of capital for early stage space ventures. The purpose of this podcast is to provide angel investors and other stakeholders with the context and information necessary to understand the opportunities and risks inherent in what we like to call the entrepreneurial space sector. In this episode, we'll be discussing commercial space stations and how they'll help actualize a future where millions of people live and work in space. And if this seems like a flight of fancy, consider this. Jeff Bezos, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the history of our planet, is selling $1 billion of his Amazon stock every year in order to fund his space company, Blue Origin, which will play a material role in making the widespread utilization of commercial space stations a reality. When you stop to think about it, this is a really big deal and an indicator that investing in space is a winning proposition. Space is a large and growing global market today with over $320 billion in government spending and commercial revenue each year. And with 75% of that market, commercial companies are playing an increasingly more prominent role in this traditionally government-led sector. A couple of years ago, NASA held a workshop on the commercialization of low Earth orbit. The goal of the workshop was to start a dialogue about creating a thriving commercial marketplace in low Earth orbit over the next decade. Through innovative new public-private partnerships, NASA's purchasing cargo transportation from a handful of companies now and will begin purchasing crude launch from companies like SpaceX and Boeing next year. This will be the first time American launch vehicles take astronauts to orbit since the shuttle was retired in 2011. And by the 2020s, near the planned end of life of the International Space Station, NASA's intention is to transition low Earth orbit from a domain that's primarily government-led to one that is led by the private sector. This creates an opportunity, not only for commercial space ventures to supply the space stations that will fill the void, but it will also provide an incredible opportunity for angel investors to participate in what will inevitably be astronomical growth in this market. That's why I'm confident that you're going to be fascinated by our interview today with Jeff Mamber, who's CEO of Nanoracks. Nanoracks is the world's first commercial space station company, and as CEO, Jeff is one of the most influential people driving the sector forward today. Back in the 80s, Jeff was a journalist writing for the New York Times, and the space industry at the time was the space shuttle. Uh, it cost a billion and a half dollars, $100,000 per pound to get to orbit. Um, it was all government. And, you know, a couple of defense contractors building some things for NASA. And that was the space sector. And he went from that role in a couple of decades uh, to being one of the most influential leaders in the entrepreneurial space sector. His journey has really shown the opportunity in the space sector. I mean, he came in and uh, transitioned from that career into basically now the world's leading provider of commercial space station services. So for me, you know, this is not only just a, a fascinating uh, personal story um, of career change and following your dreams, but it also goes to show just how much opportunity there is in the space sector and how you as an individual sitting on the outside with an interest, um, how quickly uh, you can go from, uh, from being on the outside um, to really making a name for yourself. So Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Great. It's great to be with Space Angels. Thanks. So, so Jeff, uh, when I talk about recent developments in the space sector, I usually like to point to 2009 as a key turning point, the year that SpaceX 
successfully launched their first commercial payload. But that wasn't an isolated event. And in fact, you and NanoRacks have played a key role in laying the foundation for the sector that we're seeing today. So um, back in 1999, you founded MirCorp, and that was the world's first commercial space station. So can you tell me a little bit about that, your experience uh, with MirCorp and how you got involved in space in the first place? You know, it's it's a funny thing, Chad, but a lot of folks in our industry focus on the launch launch vehicles. And for me, it's the destination. And it's always been the destination. Uh, the goal for me is to make space just another place to do business. And for that, you need commercial real estate. So in the 90s, I used to joke that if you wanted to work with the capitalists in space, you'd have to work with the Russians. And if you wanted to work with the socialists, you'd work with NASA. And that was the situation in the 90s. And I'm very proud today that it's not the situation today. America has returned to its rightful place as leading in, in all markets, including that of uh, commercial space. But at the end of the 90s, um, the Russian government wanted to bring down the Russian space station Mir. And I've always been passionate that you simply do not throw away hardware that's in space. And so a group of us got together and we raised considerable capital and we leased the Russian space station Mir. And uh, also at the time, the Russian government privatized it. So it belonged to a Russian company called Energia. This is the heart and soul of the Russian space program. They did uh, Gagar Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, the first space stations. They did Sputnik. And they owned the Russian space station Mir. So Mir Corp was a Dutch company. We took it over. And when uh, finally the, uh, we, we did far better than we even imagined, uh, we signed with Mark Burnett of uh, the uh, Survivor producer. Uh, we had a game show with NBC where the winner would go to space. We signed Dennis Tito before he subsequently went on with Space Adventures to the ISS. And we had a backlog of $179 million when, for political reasons, really, the U.S. government uh, forced the Russians to bring down the mirror. So I, I, come, I came into NanoRacks with extremely unique experience, but one convinced that sometimes it's not technological change where you get commercial growth, but it's, 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 it's a policy change. It's, it's a, a new business model. In this case, it was a private company operating on a government-owned platform. That's great stuff. So you personally, how did you get into space? How did you get selected for your role at MirCorp? Or how did you, you know, find your way into MirCorp? How did you, you founded the company? So um, I, I got involved. There was a wave of commercialization and excitement. The first wave, we kind of call it, that's when Deke Slayton, uh, one of the original seven, he wanted to launch rockets uh, such as the Conestoga. Uh, people were uh, uh, proposing all sorts of things such as external tanks, uh, which would be uh, space stations using the discarded external tank of the space shuttle. It was an exciting time and I was a writer. And I was writing for the New York Times and, uh, and others, and I got captivated uh, by the, this, this coming commercial frontier. And pretty soon I became the uh, go-to in New York for the New York Times, Business Week, Aviation Week, writing on commercial space. I got to meet all of the entrepreneurs. And, and so that was great. And that's what really launched my career. 
And, uh, and then uh, slowly I became an advisor. And then I became that dreaded thing, a consultant. And pretty soon I became an entrepreneur. And that's how I arrived. But then I, we found out at that time in the 90s that very often the space agency was a competitor. And, and so I ended up more and more. Uh, uh, I worked with Lance Bass when he wanted to fly a Vensink to space. And, and it, was, it, was, it was very difficult in the early 90s and mid-90s to work with NASA. That was a change uh, which has taken NASA, as you say, SpaceX, at the beginning of that, uh, cargo, commercial cargo to the station, and then later – uh, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about that, uh, how they were willing and why they were willing to work with the nanoracks as a commercial pathway to their space station. So it took an evolution. One of the reasons I'm convinced this time it's to stay is that this has been a bipartisan, slow evolution. This is not just a whim. This is not just a change. Slowly, the United States has recognized that uh, the uh, space frontier should be treated like any other extension of our society, including capitalism. So NanoRacks is the world's leading space station services company. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, we become uh, the go-to uh, for companies, organizations, educational institutions, and governments wanting to use the space station in a commercial manner. What makes us uh, unique is Nanorax is absolutely customer-focused. At the end of the day, what we want is a happy customer. Whether you use our hardware, whether you don't, we want to make the customer happy. And so what's happening now is we have several types of customers. We have those that are sophisticated. They've used the space environment many times, and we have a service on the station, whether it's a satellite deployment service, whether it's pharmaceutical drug research, whether it's educational, whether it's a test bed for electronics. And they look at that and they say, gee, we could work with NASA and have that problems. We could work with something else perhaps, or we see here's a private company that owns and operates its own hardware and offers it in transparent pricing, and they use us. On the other hand, we also have customers that are new to space. They Maybe they know they want to do an educational project with a satellite, a CubeSat. Maybe they want to get some data. Maybe they're in research, but they don't know the business today. And the business is growing rapidly, as you well know. And so we have a couple of customers now that have come to us and said, we don't want you to just to deploy a satellite. We want you to find the satellite for us or have it manufactured, get the regulatory approval, uh, operate the, the sat deploy the satellite uh, uh, and, and handle the, uh, the, down, the data down for us. In other words, a turnkey system. And suddenly an $85,000 customer becomes a $400,000 customer because now we're doing the entire service. And they're correct. We know most of the folks who are doing the CubeSat manufacturing. We know those who will be willing to work on a one satellite satellite or those who work well quickly or though and we know the right lawyers and so for us it's almost a uh, concierge service we call it where if you're sophisticated fine here's our price here's what we do you're not as sophisticated we take the time to sit down with you and what's important Chad is we made a decision several years ago never to compete against our customers so we don't own and operate constellations when we don't own and operate or intend to launch vehicles um, we're as agnostic as we can be in performing in-space services 
I love that that touches on um, barriers and how NanoRacks is helping to, to bring down those barriers. Um, in this case, like you mentioned, it's not a technological issue. It's an issue of there's a lot of to do business in space is to do business with the government at some level. And trying to navigate through all of that, um, the, the public government side, the commercial side, making sense of all of that and helping those those two sometimes very different sides come together um, is a key service that that you guys provide. And um, so that's I, I love that because that that speaks to how you are making space more accessible. Um, you've also like SpaceX and others, you've played an essential role in lowering the barriers um, uh, in other ways. So, uh, for instance, you've launched, correct me if I'm wrong, over 500 payloads to the International Space Station. The last I, I spoke to you, you had launched 180 small satellites. That, that I mean, there was a launch yesterday, so that pro number's probably gone up. I'm looking back to um, Planet Labs. When they, you know, they're a recognized name in the space industry. Uh, they operate the largest constellation of small satellites. Um, and you helped launch some of their first satellites and helped them get to orbit. And it seems as though if nanoracks didn't exist, maybe that doesn't happen. And and can you talk us through how all that how all that came together and, and how Nanorax is enabling? Uh, as, as we do this podcast uh, today, the uh, latest SpaceX docked at the station and brought not only a very large satellite on behalf of a customer, the U.S. government, but also the first Boy Scouts of America projects. So we really have the range of uh, customers. We could not be more proud at Nanorax uh, uh, for the the customers we have introduced to space. Uh, Planet Labs has kindly said that we probably sped up their introduction to the market two years. Uh, Spire, we, we did their first satellites. GOMSpace, uh, we did their first satellites. We did the first satellites of the country of Lithuania. I think we did the first satellite for the country of Peru. Um, we launched the University of Hanoi, Vietnam into space. Um, we've just finished the first commercial Chinese project on board the International Space Station. Beijing Institute of Technology doing a synthetic DNA project that's very important. I look forward to, to reading in English the, the results. Um, we, what others like to say, we're democratizing space, we're doing it. And we've done it, okay? Every mission, every time, we will take any customer, regardless of size. And sometimes there's pressure on my shareholders saying, why are you working educational payloads that the margins may not be as good as the, as the big boys? And the reason is we want to be a space station company. We want to truly understand this market. And we understand it as well as anyone. So we could not be happier that we help Planet Labs, we help Spire, uh, you know, we've helped all these organizations and now we're excited about helping uh, helping the next generation love it can you tell us a little bit about where you see the market going well where's the market now where do you see uh the opportunities and and where do you think it's going there's a window of opportunity now for the next uh five to eight years in my view 
Uh, it's an extraordinary time. I think, uh, again, as we do this podcast, uh, they're pretty well announcing who the administrator is going to be for NASA, who the deputy administrator is going to be. We haven't placed the Space Council. Um, so we're seeing the outlines of where this administration is going, and I think it's going to go at a gallop. I think that the, the next few years are going to be very exciting. What we see finally is a maturation of access to space. Um, I'll say personally, I'm really glad I'm not in the launch vehicle business, no offense to anybody, because every month, every quarter, you hear about a new exciting venture, and let's say half of them are successful. Well, you're gonna have 30 or 40 new ways to get to space. That's why I'm happy to be in the destination side. So first off, we're going to see a maturation of uh, space transportation. Uh, we're going to see prices come down. We're going to see opportunities increase. That's going to allow a furtherance of new ideas and new business models. You see the United States government pulling out as an operator. You're going to see a huge rush on infrastructure development where Nanorax wants to be. And you're going to see services, an uh, extraordinary need for services for all these projects going to space to be handled in a cost-efficient manner. And lastly, I think we're going to see a continued revolution of making life better here on Earth using space assets. And I think we're just at the beginning of how we monitor the environment, ecological, um, waste management. All these things are going to be better utilized and monitored uh, from space. Our last large new customer was the European Union Commission. Uh, they had a, a project with 30 satellites, all from many nations, all studying uh, different aspects of the upper atmosphere for the environment, an area very difficult to monitor. Is that research or is that commercial? For the European Union, it was research and policy. For people like Nanorax, it's commercial. And so who's our customer? Well, it's government. Oh, then if it's government, says a lot of people, it can't be commercial. It's completely commercial. If I didn't deploy them, I wouldn't get paid. So we're seeing this entire flowering of a new marketplace where the governments are the customers, where research is being privatized, and companies like Nanorax uh, are joining with dozens and dozens of launch vehicles uh, to, to provide more services in space, for space, and for the Earth. And then if I could say one more thing, I have a feeling, it's my just personal um, uh, uh, belief that, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but I think within the decade, it's going to be a lot more expensive to launch a space project. Today, I mean, seven years ago, we started Nanorax self-financed. I think today to start Nanorax, you'd need a few million dollars just to start, just to get everything into place. We didn't have to. We were first on offering in, uh, services on the space station. What I see is every couple of years, the cost of entry is going up. And for investor, for folks like in your network, I honestly believe like in any, whether it's you look at phones, mobile phones, you know, a decade ago, the cost of entry today is so prohibitive. It's not the technological barriers. It's the customers being tied up. It's the positioning. I think the same is happening in space. And I think in a decade, the if you, you have to either launch something in space in a decade, it's a very niche market, or you have to be very well bankrolled. So this is the time to invest because this is when the real estate, you know, speaking, is being taken.
there's two key pieces that I want to pick up on um, what you just said. And the first is um, with NanoRex, how did that come about? Uh, I know you've got some key Space Act agreements with NASA, but how, how did you um, turn this idea into a business? There was, NanoRacks was not my idea. There were a couple of folks, and I won't say who, tried to do this for a year or so, and they were unsuccessful. And their idea was to go to NASA and say, we want to have miniaturized labs that plug into a research platform to get power and data, and you can do experiments inside. And they just couldn't convince industry. They couldn't get an agreement with NASA and they couldn't get customers. And so after a year or so, they came to me and said, and I was looking to do something after finishing my work, finally, finally, finally with the Russians. And they said, um, we have an idea that will just be part time. It will never be more than two days a week. Uh, we have this standardized uh, small uh, nano labs. And I, and I looked at it and I went to NASA and I had fought with NASA in the 90s. I was on the Russian side. And I went to NASA and said, you're willing to work with me. Uh, I'd like to see if I can get customers for you on the space station. And NASA said, look, we, we didn't like everything you were doing in the 90s with the Russians, but you got lots of customers for the Russian space station Mir, and we need customers. Sure, we'll give you a chance. And we joke about it now because they gave us total access to all their launches. They said, you know, uh, however you want to grow. And we signed a Space Act agreement in something like three months. We had our first research platform up in uh, six months. And we went with our first customers. And uh, we never looked back. We started with educational customers. Uh, we did the nano labs. Uh, then we began to grow into other markets, such as the satellite deployments and then biopharmaceutical. And then we elected to um, uh, uh, fund our own external platform outside the space station, a testbed for electronics. And we continue to grow. And now we're moving beyond the space station. We're very proud. We work with Blue Origin on the New Shepard suborbital. We do their payload integration. We help them on business development. And we're working with other folks now. And so we continue to grow to either own and operate or co-market real estate and space. And we meet the needs of our customers. So it all started with a little nano lab, and uh, and I, I guess uh, the the moral of the story is uh, NASA was willing to work with me even though I had spent years fighting them. And you started small, and you just kept finding more and more customer interest along the way. And um, if I remember correctly, I mean, when you started launching these small satellites from the station, you were even surprised that uh, that was going to be such a sweet spot for your company. Is that right? Yeah, we uh, uh, the Japanese uh, have a uh, 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 have a deployer on the station, and uh, they had room for three sat CubeSats to be deployed. And uh, NASA came to us and said, uh, "Would you like to consider deploying a satellite?" I went all over the country, could not get anyone to to pay or to believe that it could get through the NASA system. And finally, the University of Hanoi of Vietnam was our first customer. I was at a conference. I met a young man. I, I told him what we could offer. And he said, how much for the satellite? And I told for the service, you know, deploy it. I told him and he said, done. And I said, may I ask where your money's coming from? And he said, Microsoft. 
So that's the world we live in. And uh, as they say in the movies, when that picture came out, when the astronaut took a picture of those three satellites and our customer was the middle, as they say in the movies, the phone didn't stop ringing. At that point, everyone in the business calls and said, could you deploy my satellite? And, and that's when we looked at each other. We went to NASA and we didn't ask them for money. We didn't ask them for funding. We said, if we developed our own CubeSat deployers, would you let us do it? And they said yes. And in nine, month, uh, uh, nine months, we uh, designed, developed, uh, and, uh, and spent about a million and a half of our money internally. And uh, we signed Planet Labs. Uh, and we signed some other folks and off we went. And so that's how a commercial marketplace happens. And that's also the right way you're supposed to work with the government. We didn't seek government funding. And yet today, NASA is and the U.S. government is a commercial customer for a range of our, our uh, satellite servicing as well. And now you've launched hundreds. So um, this CubeSat deployer, how exactly does that work? So we're different. The way everybody else does it is you, you want to uh, deploy satellites into space. It's a beautiful market. It's emerging. It's hundreds of millions of dollars today. It will soon be a billion-dollar market. And the way it's usually done is you put the, the satellites on the outside of a rocket. It could be a small rocket or a big rocket. And it launches, and it goes to a certain spot, and then you deploy off of the rocket. What we've done is we've introduced the space station as the deployment platform. So what happens is you ride up inside a cargo ship, which is a lot more gentle, and a lot of our customers have fragile satellites and they like this more. And when it gets to the space station, the astronauts open the door, they take out the cargo, and they take out our deployers. And they load them onto a, a plate, and they bring it to the Japanese airlock, and at the right time, we deploy them. And so the space station becomes the deployment vehicle. And what's really cool about this is we are finding unique uses that's opening up new markets for us. And for example, we have something called stash and deploy now. Because when you launch on a rocket, well, hello, you deploy nine minutes after the rocket launches. With us, you can bring it up to space, which is the tough part. We store it on the space station. It can be there for six months, eight months, a year, and you deploy it when necessary. So that's just one example of the, of the way as the market matures, and this is really the first what's going to be billion-dollar market in space is the satellite components, satellite deployment, satellite manufacture, launch vehicles. We've created this add-on market where you can do new and unique things using the space station. When you were talking about how NanoRacks um, came about, these Space Act agreements with NASA um, are, uh, were, were, were critical to, to that. And it's been uh, critical to a number of other companies as well that are that are working um, uh, with NASA, and they allow they, they provide a framework for commercial companies to work in an efficient way with the government. Um, and you've had a long term contract with NASA that's been renewed, and you've now got well multiple Space Act agreements, and one of them that's very interesting uh, to me and probably a lot of the listeners is uh, this Ixium project. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and and what that means? 
A space act agreement is, is just that. It's an agreement between the space agency and a company. So we now have three space act agreements. Um, each one is growing in complexity and interest. Uh, and one is for our space station business. One is for our commercial airlock which we call the world's first gateway, commercial gateway to space. And we're partnering with Boeing on that. And we have a third Space Act agreement, um, which is fascinating, which is looking at the reuse of in-space hardware. And, and where that comes from is the United States has said that the International Space Station is the last space station the government will own and operate which means what comes next is commercial. And there's a number of companies that want to be commercial providers of what I call real estate in space. And it's really the next generation of space stations. Let me start by saying there will never again be in low Earth orbit, the area closest to Earth, a space station like the International Space Station. It was clearly built by governments for governments. It's huge. It's a hundred billion at least uh, in cost. Um, and worst, you never want to put a module where you're doing manufacturing in space with a module where an astronaut's on his bicycle pedaling because it disturbs the manufacturer. So clearly for me, the future is a number of space stations, small, commercially owned. Each one does one job. So at NanoRacks, we want to be the leaders in unmanned platforms that do in-space manufacture, um, deploy satellites, uh, manufacture fiber optics, um, Earth observation, and that will be what they do. Each one will be dedicated to one of those markets I just mentioned. Maybe somebody else wants a space hotel. So for us, it's about how do we take a market leadership? And what we've done at Nanorax is we've looked back to the past. When Werner von Braun was head of Marshall Space Flight Center, he proposed that what you do is you reuse the upper stage of a launch vehicle and make that a uh, space station. And NASA agreed, and that was our first space station, Skylab. It was a modified upper stage of a Saturn. And so what we've done is we've entered into agreement with Laral to look at reusing the second stage of an Atlas V, Centaur. And NASA thought it was pretty cool, and they awarded us a contract, a five-month study, to look at is it technically feasible. And as we speak today, we're at the four-month mark, and NASA has already agreed, I don't think I'm letting anything out by saying, that, wow, this is cool, it's feasible. And so we're very excited because it's extremely cost efficient to reuse something that's in space rather than building it from the ground up. And so what we're proposing right now as we speak to NASA is we're showing them different levels of services. You can have something that's few tens of millions where you get just the, the, the habitat and uh, there's something that might cost you a little more where maybe you get a window we can use for space tourism. Uh, and I should add that another partner in our team is Space Adventures. That's the leader in this 
based tourism. And, and so, so we're very excited about Ixion uh, because, first off, for Nanoracks to be partnered with Laral and robotics and satellite communications is very cool. To be working with ULA on reuse and repurposing upper stages is even just as cool. And, and we see the future being um, to how do you repurpose uh, in-space hardware? That's the scalability to Nanoracks. Um, for years, people said, hey, we love what you do, but you know what? There's an end date to the space station. And I didn't want to propose, oh, I can build today uh, a new module on the ground uh, along with four other people because it just didn't feel right to me. And then uh, we had the idea of let's just go back to the future. And let's do what NASA did in its glory days before it was a jobs program. And, and let's, uh, let's be as efficient as possible. So we are hoping uh, to emerge as the leader in commercial habitats by reusing uh, in-space hardware. I love it. You got two data points. One, $100 plus billion manufacturing project. You taking something that's already there and using it. I mean, from a, from a commercial perspective, it's a no-brainer. We have never been able to get economic incentives from all these regional uh, because we're too cheap. We, 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 I mean, the last thing we want is to, to say, oh, it will be 100 jobs. We just don't do it. We spend all our time trying to figure out how to be as economically efficient as possible. Curious what exactly will be reused. Right. So uh... for, for, for us, it's not about uh, what we're talking about. Reusing is the shells that the, the, the second stage or cargo ship. Um, for, for example, uh, you told me this podcast is aimed a lot towards people new to the space business. And I when I speak to, to folks new to our industry, I sometimes say the best way to understand how this industry has been run is to tell you that. On the International Space Station, we launch a cargo ship, and the upper stage is filled with cargo, valuable cargo, supplies, research equipment. When it gets to the space station, the astronauts unload it. It has nanorack satellites. It has all sorts of things. And then you know what they do? They stuff that perfectly good spacecraft in space with garbage, and they turn it around and they burn it up in the upper atmosphere. That's the mindset that has existed in this industry, to burn up a perfectly good spacecraft worth probably $50 million, it's in space, and you stuff it with garbage. That is not an efficient marketplace. So what we are proposing to reuse, we're talking to the Japanese about reusing their cargo ship after it completes its space station. We're talking about reusing upper stages of launch vehicles. We would bring up the 3D printing. We would bring up the robotics. We would put that inside the vehicle before it launches. It's really about the shell. The two main costs to really look at having commercial habitats, whether your customers, the government or commercial sector, is to have a shell, a habitat, and to launch it in space. If we take control of big shells that are already in space, we're getting real estate at, at, at very low cost. So there's a couple of common misconceptions in space, which I, I find myself um, making arguments and bringing data against all the time. And I think the NanoRacks is a great example. So uh, perhaps you can help me make this case. But 
the misconceptions are, are two things um, when you're looking to invest is that space is capital intensive and it takes a really long time uh, to make any money. And you mentioned that you were able to get to where you are today, um, uh, generating significant revenue, uh, leaders in space station utilization and services. And you did it with just a few million in equity. How have you managed to do that? We were fortunate in that we were first. Uh, had we, if we were starting nanoracks today, the price tag for entry would be far higher. We'd have to move far quicker. Um, we were the only ones uh, doing the commercial utilization of space station. And so we had the opportunity to start small, build it up customer by customer. For us still today, it's not for now about the revenue, it's about taking the market position. And, and we've self-invested a lot. Our EBITDA would be better today uh, if we, uh, or I'm not sure, but, uh, uh, you know, we show better returns, but we self-invest quite often. We probably take 30% of, uh, of, of what we get on the co positive cash flow, and we put that back into the business um, uh, to, for the next generation hardware, for new services, new ideas. Um, you know, so for us, it's about investing in the future. It's about making sure we're in the right position in the marketplace. And we want to understand this market. And so that's why we are very happy. We have customers ranging from high schools to European Union Commission, um, because that way we understand the market and the price points. We at Space Angels um, believe that, and we end all of our blog posts with uh, the belief that now is uh, the most opportune time in history to be investing in this sector. So the question for you is, uh, do you agree with that statement? Um, and, and if so, why? Uh, without a doubt, this is the most extraordinary investment opportunity that has ever existed in for commercial space. I absolutely believe that for angel investors, this is a unique uh, opportunity to invest in commercial space. Um, so it's both the political, the government accepts that they should be a, a customer. It's technological. We're beginning to understand very well the rocket technology, uh, in-space services. Look, uh, we, we went to the moon with slide rulers 30, 40, 50, 50 years ago. Today, with what we have, a nanoracks with what we do in nanolabs, our customers do, the way we do the satellite deployment, miniaturization, standardization. This is an extraordinary time of infrastructure development. And uh, usually angel investors cannot take part in infrastructure development. I mean, uh, look, how often does an angel investor get to invest in a field where the richest uh, person in the world, Jeff Bezos, is saying the next decade will bring about uh, warehouses and factories, uh, jobs are going to be created uh, in space for, for space utilization and making life better on Earth. And yet, at the same time that Jeff Bezos is saying this and Elon Musk is, is involved in this and governments are involved in this, the angel investor has an opportunity to invest. And that's the way I look at it. And, and, and so this is a golden opportunity, I think, for the next generation. And, and having said that, uh, it's extraordinarily beneficial that there's an organization like um, uh, Space Angels, um, because this is a complex industry. We speak in acronyms. There's a lot of regulatory. 
Um, the growth curves are a little different. Uh, the the issues that we worry about are, are unique, as is true in every marketplace. Uh, and it can seem bewildering if you grew up on science fiction uh, to have front what's the reality. And Space Angels is, is an extraordinarily valuable bridge. Uh, it, it can it what it does is it, it determines what's real, what's investable. Um, and what I like about what Space Angels is doing is what the name implies. Just as we are seeking a nanorax to democratize space and access to space, Space Angels is doing the same thing in the liquidity and the investment front. And so we share the philosophy. We have to end the circle of uh, commercial use of space. And I, and I really appreciate Space Angels' role in that. So, Jeff, thanks very much for coming to talk to us today. Um, very exciting stuff. Happy to be involved uh, with what you guys are doing and really excited to see where you guys, uh, where NanoRacks goes next. Great. Well, it's been uh, great to spend the time talking to you today and uh, look forward to the next few years as well. This was um, a great interview and really exciting for me personally. I, I really enjoy having these conversations with these leaders. And after that interview with Jeff, I'm certain you're going to want to learn more about becoming an investor in early stage space ventures. So I want to invite you to visit our website, spaceangels.com, where you can learn all about Space Angels membership and how you can get involved in this exciting new sector. Thanks for tuning into the Space Angels podcast. And before I sign off, I just want to put in a plug for episode number three, The Entrepreneurial Space Age, where we'll be interviewing Jim Cantrell, CEO of Vector Space Systems.